Today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. Open your Bibles if you have one. If you don't, pick up the black Bible in front of you. And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse, uh, uh, what is it? We're going to start with verse 11, I think, or, or a little beyond that. Yeah, 11 through the end of the chapter. Walking our way verse by verse through uh, the book of Ephesians. And so as you turn there, and if, if it's in the Black Bible, I don't remember what page number it's on, uh, maybe 917, 918, something like that. Um, but if you're, you're in Ephesians chapter 2, I want to ask this question. Have you ever felt like an outsider? Wherever you've been, you've been a new community, a new school, a new job, you know, you're kind of an outsider. Sometimes you're an outsider because you're new to something, you know, to all these new places, Maybe married into a, a new family, and all of a sudden now you're going to family reunions with people you don't know and, and hearing all these stories. Uh, new to the church. How many, by the way, this is exciting to me, how many of you uh, have come to our church within the last three years? Just raise of hands. Just incredible blessing there. Thank you for being here. Having everyone seemingly knows each other when you go to a new place, but you're kind of the outsider. And it can make you feel a little isolated, not connected, because you're unfamiliar. Sometimes you're an outsider because you're a little different. You've been around a long time, but you're a little different. I remember when I, I moved to a new place uh, from Texas to Las Vegas, Nevada, when I was uh, the summer of, after my ninth grade year, I moved to Las Vegas, Nevada. Believe it or not, people do live there. And we don't all live on the strip in a hotel, all right? So, um, but I, when I moved there, I went to Western High School, and I was on the football team, but uh, I didn't realize that I would be the only guy on the entire campus that wore boots. Now, Tim wears boots all the time because Tim is Tim. I wore boots all the time when I lived in Texas and before that, but then I get to Las Vegas, and nobody in my high school wore boots. This is the days of uh, uh, the beginning of rap music and, and breakdancing, and that uh, didn't work with me. So I was there, and I did everything I could, but I was so different, and people would make fun of me. Ultimately, it didn't matter to me. I, you know, people make fun of me no matter what. You just got to get used to that. I remember a guy on my football team, though, says, you know, there's only 0.00001% you know, of students who wear boots, and it's you. I mean, you're it. And why do you do that? Why can't you, know, you, you wear these expensive tennis shoes and all? I said, that's just not me, but I'll love you anyway, and you can love me or not, whatever. And so not until uh, the national finals rodeo started coming to Las Vegas during that time, you know, and then Garth Brooks hit the scene, and that was kind of a big deal, and everybody was, you know, jumping on it. Then, then all of a sudden, you know, I was country before country was cool, but uh, I was different. And so, you know, I was kind of an outsider. Well, there's a lot of reasons why I become an outsider. Sometimes because of your age, sometimes because of your gender or your skin color or hair color or maybe your accent. Sometimes it's because of your clothes or your, your social uh, economic status. We're all outsiders at some point. History is filled with examples of insiders and outsiders. You'll find different groups of this. Social distinctions, racial barriers, na uh, narrow nationalism, iron curtains that come down, even in the first century. And as we look at this text, I want you to understand there were insiders and outsiders depending on which group you were with. In the first century, there was an exclusive and unrelenting separation between Jews and Gentiles. The Jews had an immense contempt for Gentiles. They were outsiders, not welcome. 
They said that Gentiles were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. It's pretty stark language. In fact, it was unlawful for a Jewish woman to serve as a midwife for a Gentile woman since she would help deliver a child um, of idolatry. Likewise, the Gentiles had an animosity towards Jews and held a hatred uh, for anyone like them. To the Jews, Gentiles were dogs. To the Gentiles... The Jews were homicidal enemies of the human race. The Gentiles were outsiders even when it came to worshiping God. And so as we look at this text, there's there's a discussion here of understanding how both Jews and Gentiles can come together and become one family even though you may have been outside at one point or, or distinctive. The temple was divided this way. Four distinctives in the, in the temple courts. There was the court of the priests, that's the closest to the Holy of Holies. And then there was the court of Israel, that was the place for the men to be in the courts uh, to worship God. And then there was the court of the women, just one outside step of that. And then there was the court of the Gentiles on the outer perimeter of the temple. Gentiles you can come and look upon, but you can't be a part of. They were known as God-fearers, but they weren't part of the family. Even as Paul was arrested uh, because the Jews hated uh, the Gentiles. You can look back uh, in the book of Acts when the seven days uh, were almost completed. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, uh, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law and against this place. Moreover, he even brought Gentiles into the temple. They're they're starting these rumors going, kill Paul because he even brought Gentiles in here and defiled this holy place. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple at once. The gates were shut. They were all seeking to kill him. Why? Because he dared to invite a non-Jewish person into the worship of God. If you've ever experienced being an outsider being unwanted, being unwelcome. You can relate with the first century Gentiles. But have you ever been in a situation where you were new and an outsider, but because you stayed long enough, you adjusted to the culture, you moved from outsider to insider? When I was introduced to Jesus Christ, I I received him as my Lord and Savior. I knew very little about the Bible, little about church life, the language, the You know, I was uh, younger, but I stayed around long enough until I understood salvation, and I I became a Christian, and then some some people within the church took me under their wing and and, uh, patient enough with me and, and taught me the ways of Christ. They showed God's grace because they understood the gospel was for more than just the insiders. There's a whole lot of people on the outside that ought to be welcomed to the family. God's grace invites us to be a part of a greater family, a bigger family than we can imagine. And we must never take our salvation nor the church for granted. A church is not a, a, uh, a building. A church is a gathered body that is related to one another. 
days ago, we used to say, hey, brother, so-and-so, sister, so-and-so, as a reminder that we are one family. In this text, we're going to see how God takes people from the outside, which in reality, everyone's on the outside of, of, um, of holiness, and they need to be welcomed into a relationship with the, the Father and have an eternal home in the family. In this text, we're going to see three reminders, if you will. Reminders for those who are in the faith, and perhaps for you today, it'll be the first time you've heard it, but you'll notice in verse 11, therefore remember. So that, that prompts me to know there's some reminders here, something we should know if we don't, but if we do know them, we need to be reminded here when we begin to encounter those outside of our church, outside of our faith, and how should we love them and treat them so they might desire to be a part of us and what God's doing. Here, we're going to be reminded what we were like before our relationship with Jesus. We're going to be reminded of of what it was like to experience having the initial relationship with Jesus, and then what is happening now because of our relationship with Jesus. Here's the first section that I want you to see in this, and, and I'll just title it this way as we're taking notes, God's family welcomes those without. Are we a family, and that's a great question for all of us, are we a church family, a godly family that welcomes those that are without? Outside is the, the preliminary thought, but I want you to see in the text, what are they without? When we encounter people who are without some things, are we welcoming those so they can be within and, and have the very joy, the salvation, the hope that we have? I want you to see in the text a couple of things here. We had a relationship, we were in a position of having no relationship with Christ, and you're going to see in verse 11, therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision or uncircumcision, that's the outsiders, if you will, the unwanted, the undesired, the, the unappealing, the unwelcome, the unaccepted, the unclean, the undeserving. If you're Gentile, you are outside of the faith. Remember this, by what is called the circumcision, the insiders, the outsiders and the insiders, the uncircumcision and the circumcision, the the Gentiles and the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands, but remember, once again, we'll be reminded in verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, and having no hope and without God in the world. Our invitation is to those without. Look at what is the without. They're without Christ. They're separated from Christ. Oh, how we desperately need Christ for our salvation. And those outside of the faith are without Christ. Even for the Jewish people the, uh, prior to Christ's coming, we're looking for a Messiah that would save them. But even in the Old Testament, there were prophecies about how God was going to do work even beyond the Jews, that he was going to have people from all the tribes. He had a prophecy that the Gentiles would be grafted in. There's a desire for all people. There was Israel that was the protected and chosen uh, people. But that was where he was launching from not excluded to. 
So here you notice that the Gentiles were without Christ. Those Jews who came to faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, then had to realize that he was going to be bringing others in. The Gentiles, those Gentiles are basically non-Jews. Anybody who's non-Jewish is a Gentile. The Jews must have a desire for their Savior because their Savior has a desire for the Gentiles, the non-Jews. They're separated from Christ, separated from the Creator of their life, separated uh, uh, spiritually from their Savior. They're without Christ. Therefore, are you welcoming them into the family because they're without They're without family, you notice here, uh, uh, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, the very chosen race of God, and the Gentiles were outside of that. And so to open our arms, say, you you have no eternal family, so we desire to invite you into the family, not to become Jewish, but to become Christ's child. They lacked a family status. They lacked a, a citizenship. God's family welcomes those without Christ. Those, we welcome those without a family. We welcome those without promises. They're strangers to the covenants of promise. God has made some incredible promises that are eternal. So many of the prophecies and promises have already been fulfilled, but there are so many yet to come. And when you are apart from Christ, separated and alienated from Him, not part of the family, not understanding, even the things that are happening in the world today, it may concern you, but you don't understand all of the spiritual warfare going on. And even in the midst of these days, we ought to call people to hope in God who is on His throne. That will we'll take uh, Jews and Gentiles and, and bring them together. You notice there's a, uh, the covenants of promise. There's a, a plurality here. There are many promises. And I, I wonder how much people are truly missing out on that they don't understand. They're without Christ, without family, without promises, and they're without hope. No hope. Nothing beyond now. No eternity, nothing beyond what they can see. One of the challenges over the last three years because of the pandemic was the mental health crisis. Do you agree? I heard a speaker this last week at the Refuel Conference just uh, talk about in his particular community, he was a pastor in California, and uh, as uh, they were shutting down the churches and shutting down everything, just uh, apparently across the street there was a bar or, or at least a liquor store, and that wasn't closed down, but it was very busy. People were struggling in the community, and alcohol was the, the one authorized government uh, uh, opening. But you can go there. Well, this pastor had a broken heart over this going, there's a mental health crisis. By the way, he said the first, what, it was four or six weeks or something, there was not one death of COVID, but there had been four or five or six suicides in that community because of it. There's a mental health challenge here. So he goes to his, his chief of police. He goes to the mayor. He, he goes to the government officials in his area and says, we've got a mental health crisis. We need to step up. We need to help. The church is far greater for their their soul than the alcohol is going to do for them. We're going to open up. And they they actually sanctioned it. They said, fine, and if the, the, the state of California comes after you, we're going to step in. But from that, they began to have real conversations with people who were struggling with a lot of things, and they brought hope. I think they baptized over 50 people that next year. 
because people are looking for something. The government didn't have the answers, and the CDC couldn't give you any hope. And, and, and if you watch the news, you just go into a deeper depression. And the church was right in that community. They weren't trying to change the world. They were trying to change the people within their perimeter, just saying, we love you and we have hope for you. And that's what we have a position of doing. There are people without hope right within, within the voice that they could hear on the speaker outside if we had that on. People that, that stop over here at the gas station, people at that food line, just sit in that parking lot just for a short time, and you'll see dozens, if not hundreds of people a day that walk in, in and out of there without hope. And how can I tell? Look at their face. Just kind of walking through life. You say hi, they go, hi. They just don't have a lot of hope. They're without hope, so do we have a broken heart for them? Because we know where the hope is. Say it's just one beggar telling another beggar where to go find some food. The reason they have no hope is because this last phrase, they were without God. Gentiles worship many gods. Some of them worship no gods. Some of them worship a plurality of gods. But there was no hope in any of the gods, and they weren't worshiping the one true God. I loved how Paul went into. Uh, in Acts 17, just walked into a community and says, you got a lot of gods here, but you got one unknown God. Well, I know him. Let me introduce you. The one God who could absolutely transform their life. Without God, uncertain. How many people in our community uh, don't know God, but they, they pray, but they have no idea where it goes. They have no, they, they have no certainty that, that someone is listening to their, their cries they're unable to receive the, the healing and provision that they are seeking. Gentiles are outside of a relationship with God in this text. Remember, that's how you were. God's family welcomes those without. And I wonder if we have a heart and a prayer for those without. So let's walk through this text a little further. Because God's family is not just about welcoming those without. God's family rejoices in reconciliation when those without or ushered into the faith because the Holy Spirit has, has opened their eyes and hearts and we've presented the truth and they say yes to that which has been presented. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. You see the coming together. There was two. There was a dividing wall. But he's taken the two and becoming one as one new man, one family, one representation of God's blessing and grace in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both Jews, Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Assuming in this text that the far off ones were the Gentiles outside of the, the courts closest to the Holy of Holies and been brought near even those who were near to understanding the truth. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, all collectively together, fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of 
God. Precious truths here. The reconciliation. Experiencing a relationship with Jesus now has a but now. This is what was true. You were alienated without God, separated, not part of the family. But when you trust in Jesus Christ, he brings all people together and he reconciles you to the God you've been separated from. This but now is just as important as the but God phrase earlier in this text. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. But God, the contrast between this is what it was, but God gives you a different direction. This is where you were as a Gentile separate from God, but now this is where you have been invited to and what's taking place. Every person, ultimately, uh, in, in all of the texts of Scripture and all of today, we understand is far from God at birth. You're not born a Christian. You're reborn a Christian. You're born a sinner, and you have that nature. You're separated from God because of your sin. But our hope and our rescue from sin is only found in God through Jesus Christ. Those without need to understand the one who came for. I want you to notice here, when it says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been near, uh, been brought near by the blood of Christ. You know, notice it doesn't say, you've now found God, or you were out searching for him, or you even brought yourselves near, though there is some... Uh, action on our part that we respond to, I want you to understand the position that God wants us to understand that God is the pursuer of your heart. You weren't pursuing him. If there's any desire in your heart, it's because God has opened your eyes and heart and you knew you needed him. You're not just left out in the corner that God has forgotten about. God came all the way to expose himself to you so that you go, I need you. I want you to, to, to notice just in the whole frame of what we've seen so far in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, I want you to listen to how great your God is and what he has done for you. See, the, the difference between Christianity and, and all the other religions, it's not about what you do for him. It's what he has done for you. Do we respond in faith? Yes, but it's never about our work. That's why no man can boast. I want you to listen to the words that Paul has already revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 3, God, what has God done? He has blessed us. In verse 4 of chapter 1, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. In verse 5, He predestined us. In verse 5, He adopted us. In verse 7, He redeemed us. In verse 7 as well, He forgave us. In verse 8, He lavished good on us. In verse 18, He has called us. In verse 20, He raised Christ from the dead. In verse 20 again, He seated Him at His right hand. In verse 22 of chapter 1, He put all things under His feet. And then He says, He gave Him as head over over all things in the church. In verse uh, chapter 2, verse 4, he loved us. In verse 5, he made us alive together. In verse 5 as well, he seated us with him. In verse 10, he created good works which he prepared beforehand. With all of these things. And then you notice in verse 14, with all that God has done up to this point, then he says, for he himself is our peace. He has brought the peace. When we worship God, it's not going, 
God, look at what we've done for you. Even display all of our trophies, all of our our, our degrees, all of our our, our efforts. Throw them out there as if God's going to give you favor by what you do. Why do we worship? Because of all he's done for us. We haven't earned our spot. We just received the greatness of God in our lives so that he would enable us to respond in a way that gives him glory through what we do. Let the world see your good deeds. Why? That they would glorify your Father in heaven, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. How is it that when you do something, God gets the glory? Because what you do is prompted by him. And when you do it for his glory, you know it's not about you. Have you ever done something, said something, been in a situation where, where you weren't fully prepared, but then it went so amazing and you, went, you sat back and go, I don't know what took place other than God must have done something through me. Wow, the words that I just came to my mind and I shared, wow, I had no idea. It wasn't because you were so good and God was so happy to get you on his team that he, he, he could advance. No, he would take spiritually dead people, make them alive, ill-equipped people, and equip them. He doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. Have you ever heard that? It's because he, he, he takes the bad news bears and he makes them a World Series team. And you know what happens in the world? People go, that's amazing. There's no explanation other than this ragtag tag of people have something greater behind them, working in them and through them. That's the beauty of the church. You know, you think about the 12 disciples Jesus called. He could have went out and got businessmen. He could have got, hey, take a couple couple Pharisees who, you know, had the whole Old Testament memorized. He could have just taken anybody, the the greatest and the best, the the most recognizable. And he doesn't. He goes after the the fishermen and the most hated tax collectors and just a a ragtag group. Spent three three years with them. He dies. They're rejecting him. They're doubting him. He rises from the dead. Even, even Thomas says, well, I got to see it. I, I just don't believe it yet. And then he says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to heaven, and I'm leaving the work to you. Can you imagine? Shaking in their boots. <laughs> How are we going to do this? There's nobody on the planet who's thinking anything's going to happen with this. But what happens? They, he tells them to go and pray. Go to the upper room until the Holy Spirit gets there and then watch what takes place. What takes place when they are, it, it, when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells in them? Peter, who was backpedaling from a servant girl saying, I don't know him, to 50 days later, he's preaching before thousands and they're getting saved. The very place that they were afraid to die if they were connected to Christ, now they're willing to die no matter the cost. Something took place that had to be of God. And that's why people were being converted, because God was doing something. It wasn't about the disciples. It was about the disciples' surrender that God would work through them. And then people would be amazed that God is great. This is the whole point of Israel. Why did God select a nation for himself? Is because they were the best, the greatest? No, they made mistakes all the time. They blew it. Their leaders blew it. They sinned. They were even divided. Ten of the tribes were totally annihilated. They had 12 tribes in Israel. Only two were preserved, but then they went into exile and came out, and they still couldn't get it right. But God selected them so that when he did his miraculous work through them, 
the world would take notice and say, we want to be a part of it. This is why the church is here today. God has still preserved the Jews. We can talk about theology and the placement of the Jews today, but I'm still praying Jewish people come to their Messiah, Jesus Christ, alone for their salvation. You're not saved because you have Jew on your name. Even Paul said, but not all Israel is Israel, but there is a remnant. And all of us as Gentiles, apart from the Jewish faith, come to the same Messiah, come to the same Savior. And it's not about us. It's all about what God does in us. That we open our eyes and say yes to him and embrace him and say, God, it's not about my power, but I'm praying that you would enable me to be far greater than I could ever imagine or ask for. You look at this text, and this is what's taking place for those uh, that need the faith. It's all about what God has done, and he himself is our peace. He brings peace, peace with God. We were separated, alienated, apart from God, and Christ himself came and became the peace, the reconciler. Even as Romans 5, 1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, this, this our, we have to have faith, but we have faith because he is our peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There would be no reconciliation between our creator and the creation if Christ didn't step in and bridge that gap. So we must trust in him. The last point in your outline, God's family breaks barriers and builds unity. You see this in the text that we just read. We are now, what we are now because of our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In verse 14, who has made us both one. The reconciliation between God and man, and the reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. That God is able to to crash and, and, and destroy the barrier between the two. Jews and Gentiles were equally in need of Christ, and they were equally saved through faith in Christ. And when Jesus becomes the Savior and Lord, he breaks down the walls of separation between you and him and between you and others. Only Christ can truly break down the barriers. What's going to bring peace in the Middle East? Not another accord, not another signed document. In your lifetime, how many peace accords have been written and broken? If Jesus can break down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles in this text and beyond, what can he do between black and white, Asian and Hispanic? What can God do between rich and poor and older and younger? Is there a dividing line that Christ can't conquer? I wonder where the walls of separation are in your life. Is there a person or even a group of people that you keep a wall up between you and them? It's time to ask Christ to break down that wall. Perhaps there was an incident or, or many years of disagreements and you've allowed a wall to be brought up between you and someone else. It's time to break down that wall. Ask Christ to do so. Maybe the wall isn't the difference or a distance. The distance isn't the issue. Maybe they're not a far way away. Maybe they're very close. Maybe it's just within your own heart. Someone in your home, someone at your workplace, someone at school. Maybe you live with them in your dorm. And you've allowed resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness to build a barrier up between you and the other person. You may look at them, but you don't look at them with love from the love of Christ. You look at them with contempt. You treat them as an enemy. It's time. 
Ask Jesus to break down that wall. To soften your heart. We'll get to it in a couple of chapters, but in Ephesians chapter 4, verse, verse 31 and 32, maybe I'll just assign this as your memory verse for the next uh, month. Listen to these words, because I tell you what, if you can embrace the words that Christ says here to Jews and Gentiles, then you can embrace this in your life today, and it'll make incredible difference. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? As God in Christ forgave you. I don't expect the world to embrace that verse. But Christ has given it to the church. And if the church would do that, if the church could be a place where Jews and Gentiles, black and white, poor and and, and rich, younger and older, every separating uh, uh, place in the the universe could, could be broken down and brought together, the world will take notice what is going on. That is a unique group. There's something powerful here that is unexplained in, in human desires. There's a reconciliation that you need with God, and there's a reconciliation you need with others. Our family is a bigger family than you can imagine. There's no room for isolated Christians. There's no room for, for, for walls being uh, constructed between us. I want you to look at the last uh, three verses here. Verse 20, built on the foundation, the church, this, this reconciliation with God and with one another, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He is the chief member of our family, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Worldwide, there is a church. We could go to Egypt today. We could go to Africa, anywhere. We could go to China. We could go to Europe, and we could find brothers and sisters who have the same passion for God that we do perhaps even greater because of some of the persecution they're under, uh, undergoing. But in this community, my biggest prayer is that West Lynchburg would not just be a gathering of people who dress alike, look alike, uh, make the same amount of money, or root for the same college football team. My prayer is that we would be a family that represents the holiest of families, every color, under God's mosaic of culture every heartbeat for every person. And we would turn our hearts towards God who has turned his hearts towards those who are without. Do we want our family to grow just for numbers? Absolutely not. But God is either going to bless through this church or he's going to go bless through another body that desires to do so. But if we have our own selfish ambitions, we'll never glorify God. I want every person in this community to know this, these doors are open. Our arms are wide open to, to receive. We don't receive sin, but we receive people. 
God accepts us in spite of our sin, but his goal is to not only forgive us, but to eradicate that sinful behavior in our lives. So some churches will say, let me just expand my thought just for a moment. I'll probably get in trouble. There are some churches even in our community that that say everybody's welcome and you remain the same. Bring your sinful lifestyle and we'll celebrate it. That is not our heartbeat as a church. Our heartbeat is we love them as a person. And we hate the same sin that God hates. God hates my sin as much as he hates your sin. And the church is a healing place to to be loved in spite of us, but to be shown the truth so that we can be transformed. I don't want to be a country club of those who are content with where we are. I want to be a healing center and a transformation center where God's going to do a radical work in our heart, surgery to eradicate the sinful cancer that's eating up our society. I want the church to be a light in the community that says, Even those who have such wretched lives can be transformed, not for good church life, but for God's glory to say, this is what it means to be joyful, happy, hopeful, and Christ-honoring. Are we inviting people? That's all right. Celebrate God's word. Are we inviting people into a transformation or just a holy huddle of, of just content people? I don't want to just put out a flag or a banner that says, oh, we embrace your sin. I want to put out the hope that people need to depart from their sin and be totally transformed and forgiven of their sin. And we need each other to help. Every one of us need to love one another enough to speak into each other's lives. Hey, I see you're kind of drifting off. I love you enough to say it, and I love you enough to walk by. I'm not going to isolate Because you are in sin, I'm a sinner too. I need your help as much as you need my help. Let's love one another because we're family. If one of your family members didn't show up for dinner tonight that lives in your home, you go, where are they? I don't know. Let me look on Life360. They're not even on. I don't know what's going on. You go out in a search party. How often in the news throughout the week we say, we're missing a 16-year-old. They've disappeared. Hey, this, this married young lady, 28 years old, has disappeared. Where is she? Let's go find her. The whole community comes about. There are people in our family that are still missing that we need to go after because they're part of our family. And then there are those God wants to invite into our family. He wants to use you as the invitor and will love them beyond their sin. Even the weird uncles in your family need to be invited to the family reunion. And God wants to use you because he wants to break your heart for them like his heart is broken for them.